Today on episode 23 of the Think Wild Life podcast I will be interviewing Kartik Shankar. He is a faculty at the Center for Ecological Sciences at the Indian Institute of Science Bangalore. His work predominantly covers community ecology and the biogeography of various taxa including marine invertebrates, fish, reptiles and birds. He is also the founding trustee of Takshin Foundation which is currently working under natural resource management of coastal communities thank you thank you anish what got you so interested in marine biology well uh, i think um, while i was in during my undergraduate days when i was trying to figure out what to do with my life i uh, had the good fortune of uh, of being in um, in uh, madras um, or chennai as we now know it and uh, there'd been a tradition of uh, uh going on um, of of wildlife enthusiasts and citizens going on turtle walks on the on the chennai coast uh and uh, uh actually in the early 70s romulus whitaker and others had established a little hatchery that uh you know to to protect uh, olive ridley turtle eggs from um, from poaching and predation and this tradition had been carried on by you know other state agencies including the forest department uh, so uh, and citizen groups used to go along used to go patrolling at night uh, and so i went along with one of them and uh, uh, that year for some reason the forest department decided to close down hatcheries so a group of group of us seriously and foolishly decided to start a students uh, sea turtle conservation network and uh, uh, you know the following year we had our own hatchery uh, and i saw my first turtle so uh, you know all of that was uh, was i think uh, uh, i kind of tipped over into uh, in, into deciding to a be a, an ecologist and b wanting to have to do some wanting to do something with sea turtles as well currently a scientist at the center for ecological studies of what is some research you are doing on marine turtles so the work that we do that i do here uh, only a part of it is on marine turtles so about 15 years ago we started these long term monitoring programs for sea turtles uh, in various parts of the country uh so for olive ridleys in orissa leatherbacks uh, uh in the andaman islands and a few years later in, in the, uh, uh about 2011 or so on green turtles in lakshadweep um, so we call these our index sites which are sites that are sort of representative of these populations in that region uh and we monitor their populations uh including not just the number of so for ridleys and leatherbacks the number of nesting turtles uh for ridleys we look at <clears throat> hatchling sex ratios as that can change in response to climate change uh, we've done some uh, satellite telemetry on leatherbacks uh, and on green turtles we kind of mostly mostly look at the uh, foraging populations in the lagoons in the lakshadweep uh, that's that's the uh, sea turtle oriented work which is done mostly in collaboration with uh, with dakshin foundation but independently of that in the lab we work on uh, evolutionary ecology uh, and biogeography which is the looking at the evolutionary history of frogs lizards and snakes uh, large scale spatial ecology of um, again um, many groups of vertebrates uh, we also look at behavior and community ecology of uh, uh, birds and 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 reef fish uh, and so a, a range of uh, evolution and ecology projects that uh, that we do here as well across a wide range of taxa So you mentioned Dakshin Foundation earlier. So why do you start Dakshin Foundation, and what is your long-term vision for this organization? 
before I joined IIC, I was uh, uh, a scientist at an NGO called the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment. And we started a coastal and marine program over there. Uh, the few of us who were in that program uh, felt that uh, India does not have a you know, an, uh, civil society organization that is dedicated to coastal and marine conservation. And so we decided that it would be uh, it, it would provide some value to have an organization that was dedicated to, to, to marine conservation. Uh, also, a lot of traditional conservation uh, is, uh, is about protecting, you know, habitats and species and so on. And uh, uh, it's own philosophy uh, was about uh, bringing people and conservation together. And uh, we wanted to bring that philosophy to coastal spaces and uh, perhaps even take it one, one step further. So uh, you asked what, what our uh, vision for it was. Uh, right from the outset, we had programs that dealt with, uh, uh, with species and habitats, like uh, our marine flagships program, which includes the sea turtle work that I just talked about. Um, fisheries program, which works with fishing communities to monitor um, resources. Uh, but we also had from the outset programs that focused on communities and resource governance policy um, and so on. Uh, now, 15 years later, we've actually flipped the script a little bit, and we're focusing almost uh, much more uh, in, uh, intensely on people-related issues, uh, where we're hoping through a program we call Sea Change to bring about integrated development across sectors of health, livelihoods, education, and so on in fishing communities, and uh, uh, have uh, positive environmental outcomes uh, almost as a as, as a part of the larger uh, the larger sort of uh, package. So you spoke about the fishery project at Takshin. Exactly are sustainable fisheries and what is their ecological and economical importance? Uh, well, you know, a, a sustainable fishery is one that, that, uh, that doesn't, you know, result in the declines of the targeted uh, species, right? And... Uh, this, is, this is a sort of very coarse way of putting it because in many fisheries, you know, the fishery itself may be sustainable, but some in individual species may, may undergo declines or increases. You know, it's, it's, it's not that simple a, a, a question. Uh, however, I think that the idea of uh, sustainability derives not just from, from the uh, ecological perspective, uh, but also from the social perspective. Uh, so what is a when you want something to be sustainable, uh, you need the, the, the social system to be sustainable as well. Uh, very often what happens is that when, uh, the, when uh, you have a particular kind of uh, impact, you know, a resource, form of resources extraction, and that's replaced by another, uh, uh, that can often be much worse. Right? So in a, in a, in a sense, you want, you want the whole system, both from the social as well as the ecological perspectives to be to be sustainable and to give you one example one of the areas that we worked in for uh, over 10 years now is the Lakshadweep islands of the west coast of India and uh, there for the, for uh, you know uh, generations they practiced this Poland line uh, tuna fishery and the Poland line tuna fishery is considered to be really sustainable because it, it's very targeted and it extracts primarily from these uh, from uh, these tuna populations in a manner that uh, that does not um, 
uh, or has not at the level of extra that level of extraction affected the uh, affected those stocks. Uh, they mainly take bait fish from the uh, from the lagoons, and one of the reasons that it, it it's considered to be this really uh, positive fishery is that it reduces the the communities don't then harvest heavily from the reef uh, and uh, healthy reef fish populations, especially her healthy herbivore populations, are believed to contribute greatly to the resilience of reefs. So after, for example, bleaching events, there's loss of uh, coral structure and there's a lot of algal growth and the herbivores help to keep that algal, algal growth down. Uh, and this is believed to contribute to uh, the, the resilience of those reefs. Uh, and one of my colleagues at the uh, Nature Conservation Foundation, Rohan Arthur, actually has been working on the reefs in the Lakshadweep for the last 20 plus years. Uh, and he's often referred to uh, Tuna as the fish that as the, the fish that saved the reef. Now, in that context, we sort of uh, Dakshin started working with tuna fishers to monitor uh, to man monitor catch. And um, part of this uh, engagement was not necessary because the tuna fishery itself was not sustainable. Uh, that it was not it was they were fishing it unsustainably. However, uh, there are outside pressures, right? Uh, there are pressures from outside markets to uh, build in, to, to bring in reef fisheries into the Lakshadweep uh, and change the nature of fisheries. Uh, and if uh, these fisher fishers were not getting sufficient income from tuna, they were going to move to they would eventually move to something else. Uh, and when you have one set of fishermen moving out of a system, another set of fishermen may move in, and that may not be best practices may not be sustainable. So our efforts there really have been to to figure out how we can uh, build in managements, help them build uh, management systems that uh, makes that fishery both e ecologically, economically, and socially sustainable. Um, and that's sort of, obviously it's, it's it continues to be a work in progress. Yeah. So moving on more towards uh, marine turtles, why are they considered keystone species? They're considered key keystone species for a couple of reasons, I think. One is that, um, they they do um, play these uh, particular ecological roles. Uh, so leatherbacks, for example, feed exclusively on jellyfish. Uh, there's an interesting ecological interaction there. Um, uh, you know, people say when oh the number of turtles have gone down, so jellyfish will go up and people will suffer. No such ecological interaction is so simple. Uh, however, there's um, there is evidence that uh, green turtles can. Uh, graze extensively on seagrass meadows and in fact in the Lakshadweep green turtles have been responsible for for destroying most of the seagrass meadows over there and fishermen don't like them very much because uh, you know when the meadows are grazed down then there's no there's uh, no uh, breeding and nursery sites for the bait fish that they you know that they need uh, and so they actually believe that uh, the green turtles have negatively impacted their livelihoods uh, it is, in fact, true from, again, from uh, the work that uh, we've done, as well as um, uh, NCF, whom I mentioned earlier, that these turtles have uh, severe negative impacts on, uh, on, on seagrass cover uh, and uh, you know, other seagrass characteristics like shoot heights and so on. So when you say keystones, uh, I mean, in the conservation sort of circle, keystone is usually looked, as a looked at as a positive thing. Uh, but green turtles, like elephants, can be quite destructive as well. And uh, sometimes we, we need to understand both the positive impacts as well as the negative impacts that they can have on ecosystems.
what are some of the main threats faced by marine turtles in india so historically turtles you know were fished till the 50s and 60s and so there was large large take of adult green turtles from gulf of manar olive ridleys from orissa till the 70s uh but with the introduction of wildlife protection laws most of that came to an end uh what continued was the take of eggs from beaches uh which also has really declined over time and i would say that the key threats are locally two two primary threat threats uh and um, sort of globally uh, the, the larger threat of, uh, of of climate change but locally uh there's the more immediate threat of uh, bycatch and fishing so thousands of turtles get caught in fishing nets in orissa that 10000 turtles plus die each year in fishing nets uh having said that though uh over the last 20 years we've observed that turtle populations are either stable or probably even increasing at least at rushikulia where we monitor them they've gone up from um the mass nesting uh numbers event the numbers at each mass nesting event have gone up from you know 25 to 50000 to uh, you know uh 200 plus 200000 plus turtles right so i would definitely consider that to be an an increase significant increase and this seems to be happening despite the despite the thousands of turtles being caught in those nets so i'm beginning to have to revise whether i even consider that uh, a threat to their populations or or just a waste um the most significant threat in my opinion is coastal development uh, because uh wildlife populations can recover pretty quickly because most of them have pretty you know are are uh, you know breed uh pretty rapidly turtles take a long time to mature uh and they're slow growing so they only breed after 10 15 20 years however when they do breed they breed prolifically so today there are populations of green turtles in the caribbean green turtles in the lakshadweep ridleys in in latin america there's over a million ridleys nesting in in mexico alone um so even when they've gone down to pretty small numbers they can bounce back pretty rapidly if those populations receive some degree of protection uh, but if the habitats disappear and there's no way left for them to nest uh then i'm not quite sure what comes next for them so even though people get much more emotional about seeing dead turtles on the beach and dead turtles caught in nets and so on i think that's somewhat the lesser threat compared to uh coastal development which no one seems to want to oppose because of course that's driven by large scale business and uh, and often supported you know by government policy as well uh and and so this large scale de- development that's coming up on 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 india's coasts uh is likely to be the biggest threat not just to sea turtles but but all nearshore marine ecosystems my next question is what do you think is lacking in marine conservation in india and how can this be improved in general uh, marine conservation has lagged behind you know terrestrial conservation and this is something we've been saying for the last 15 years and in a way that's why we started you know dakshin uh but today most organizations uh, most civil society organizations in india do have a marine program so uh, um is a lot of work attention there's more attention today to marine conservation issues than there was 10 15 years ago uh, what i think there isn't enough of and um, uh, is one is to try and integrate uh, social and environmental issues i think most conservation organizations try and solve uh, the uh, the ecological or environmental issue in isolation or through these really conventional and narrow uh, exclusionary approaches of setting aside protected areas and things like that which 
you know, in India and globally, we've been doing for the last 50 years. And those have limited long-term uh, value uh, and are in many ways um, violations of the basic pr principles of you know, human rights and environmental justice. Uh, and so to move away from those models uh, and actually uh, uh, embrace uh, you know, social issues, uh, sure, some 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 NGOs do have some small livelihoods programs and things like that. But but to genuinely embrace that and uh, uh, and make that uh, you know part of the solution, uh, I think is uh, is lacking largely in marine marine conservation in India, but is probably lacking in conservation in general around the world. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is is to go back to my point about development, which is I think that the, that the threats that that there's a view that you know that we can split the world into two parts, and one part we can have development, and the other part we can have uh, you know conservation and the two should not you know overlap with each other uh, is in my opinion both you know uh, outdated and unlikely to work uh, but we need uh, uh, we need conservation organizations to internalize that uh, we need the general public to, to internalize that uh, we need you know policy makers and decision makers to internalize that so that's that's kind of the i think our, our big large challenge at the moment so you also founded a current conservation. So could you elaborate on the idea behind it and your vision for the future? Right. That's actually a nice segue because, you know, I think one of the reasons that we, you know, when I was talking about the challenges, I said that, uh, of course, of course, you know, conservationists and practitioners and, uh, uh, you know, government and, and so on need to be, uh, think more broadly about conservation issues. Uh, but so does the public, right? Because eventually the public does um, uh, does does get involved in the sense that you know you have influencers, uh, you have people from the public who eventually get into one of these sectors or another, especially young people. When I say public, that also sort of includes students and potential future uh, uh, stakeholders in in these fields. Uh, uh, and not to leave, leave out, of course, you know, the, the primary stakeholders on the, on the ground. Uh, current conservation was a way to reach out to the larger public uh, on issues of conservation, uh, because we did feel that, uh, again, to sort of uh, reiterate that point that a lot of the wildlife ecology conservation magazines are very wildlife ecology centric, right? So, if you pick up one of these traditional uh, popular magazines, it's, it's very much about the it's very much about the the um, uh, species of, of of animal or or plant or whatever you know. These uh, usually decked with these spectacular wildlife photographs on the cover and and, and inside. And we felt that conservation that's a very um, uh, narrow way to present uh, the the sort of the diversity of nature and its and our relationship with it to the world and so in a way current conservation was 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 started to present a broader view of conservation uh, but also also to to um, present more uh, rigorous science based uh, when I say, and when I say science I, be, I mean both ecology and social science uh, based um, uh, perspectives and narratives uh, and to that end, so for example, most of our writers, in, in fact, are um, uh, most of our contributions come from the from the academic community, and we work with them to make their um, 
make the articles more engaging for the public. Uh, we use artwork for that. And uh, uh, we have partnerships with organizations like the Society for Conservation Bi uh, Biology, uh, through which we try and uh, you know, uh, improve the, the, the reach of the conservation science that's produced in the academic world uh, you know, uh, to, to a much broader public. So my final question for you is that what has been your greatest learning from your conservation career? My greatest learning, and this might this might sound a bit, uh, you know, uh, you know, either contrarian or controversial or provocative, but I I think conservation is uh, the move. The conservation movement is a, is is. Um, either a failure or doomed to failure. Uh, and, and I think the reason for that is that we've, we've looked upon it as this separate thing from, from us. Uh, I think conservation needs to be integrated into, you know, or environmental issues need to be integrated in, into um, our general sense of, of, uh, of, of human well-being. Uh, and this goes for whether it's the local fishing community or the farmer that, that we work with, uh, or whether it goes for the you know urban city dweller uh, like like many of us are. Uh, so I think this is, this lack of integration of these issues is is what you know I think one day we'll look back as at conservation as as a movement that had its moment uh, and perhaps triggered some interesting thoughts, but in and of itself uh, uh, failed to achieve what its uh, goals were. Uh, and so uh, my my learning in a sense is that that we should you know, abandon at least the term conservation. And for, for the larger part with, with communities, we don't talk about it as conservation at all. Uh, but our, but embedded in our well-being are all of these issues of, 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 our, of our health and of our livelihoods, but all, also of, of, you know, of the air we breathe and what we eat and, and, and so on, right? So in a way, uh, we can, uh, it, it might seem a, uh, an overly, anthropocentric way of looking at it, but, uh, but I'm, I'm quite happy to, to include what, what a famous uh, environmental philosopher called uh, cultural anthropocentrism, which is the idea that you can love animals. Uh, and that, that's also one of the ways that we, that we use them. Uh, and all of these uses are, are non-exclusionary. So I think a sense of well-being that includes uh, using nature, being with nature, um, uh, all of that, uh, uh, if we can if we can integrate that then we then we don't need conservation anymore um when i say uh, my my favorite phrase phrase is um uh, is i love fish uh and that's so much more broad minded than than saying something like i love turtles because uh the phrase i love turtles will almost always be interpreted as you know i, I like how they how they look or how they you know uh how they live or i love doing research on them i love fish can mean anything i mean i I love watching fish. I love studying fish. I love eating fish, and so it's a for me. It's a it's a brilliantly neutral term that that captures what conservation should be about. That's a very interesting way to end this interview. Thank you again for your time. It's a really big pleasure speaking to you. Pleasure speaking to you, Anish. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give us a follow on whichever platform you are listening on. Also. There are ways to support community-based conservation from wherever you are. Just simply visit the links below and buy products from our alternative livelihood projects.
90% of the revenue is sent directly to the local communities, providing them more sustainable sources of income. 